Hello, you're listening to a podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions, where we study the past to understand our feelings in the present. I'm Thomas Dixon, and this is The Sound of Anger. Episode 3, What Is It Good For? Earlier this year, I was invited to give the opening lecture at BBC Radio 3's 2019 Free Thinking Festival at Sage Gateshead, and it seemed like a good idea to gather some material for these podcasts while we were there. So I'm, I found this kind of cupboard called Dressing Room 4, which I'm going to go into and hope I can persuade some of the very clever people around here to come in with me and talk to me about anger and other emotions. The theme of the weekend was emotions, and I kicked it off with a talk about not kicking off, about how I think that more anger is the last thing we need in our furious times. So here I am in my uh, little dressing room in the back of Sage Gateshead backstage and waiting for people to come and talk to me about their emotions. And, oh, here's someone now. The thing is that I hate anger. Why are we talking to these people? I don't know. They're I don't know what I'm doing anger. at all. Doing this is Natalie, my producer. <laughs> it's fine. It's good. We should have had a conversation before we started. She's trying to get me to do these sort of atmospheric, on-location, linky things. Why do you want to talk to these people? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> don't make me. She's not angry. Well, but they, they, someone listening to this podcast knows why I want to talk to them because they well, know that I'm making a podcast. Interesting. Oh, okay. You are okay. particularly interested in some particular questions. Uh, they won't have heard your lecture. And then, but I didn't understand what you're asking yeah, me to sorry. do. Yeah, sorry. So here I am. Yeah, so... The whole thing again? Yes, please. Oh, okay. Don't get cross with me. Acknowledge the jazz. There's some jazz. I really don't think that was jazz. She means that barely audible music in the background. Producers are obsessed with background noises. Ah, yes, I hate anger. Especially my own anger. But I know many people see anger very differently from me. And so I'm sitting in this little dressing room and I'm trying to get some of the people taking part in a panel about political anger to come and talk to me uh, about their ideas. I'm particularly interested in this because... I'm quite anti-anger. I'm very suspicious of it, um, extremely suspicious of its value in my own personal life, but also pretty sceptical of the quite popular, starts to seem to me almost universal idea that anger is a good thing in politics because it helps those who are disempowered, disenfranchised to get some energy and rage and make a change in society. So I want to explore with people what they think about that um, and see whether or not I'm being a bit too sceptical. The thing that I most hate about my own anger is when it's directed at my long-suffering children. So, first of all, I tested the water with another angry dad. I never was like that until I had um, my children reach their teenage years. I was never like that before. So it's something new that I've come to terms with. Matthew Dodd is head of speech programmes at BBC Radio 3. And, you know, they're just like, you're always angry, Dad, you're always angry. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, no, I'm not always angry. He says, you're always not doing what you're asked. Well, maybe if your kids listen to this podcast, they might get more of an insight <laughs> yeah, into, exactly. into what's making you angry. Yeah. Ah, that sounds familiar. I personally hate having those bad-tempered confrontations with my children like that. But I know that some people apparently find anger a positive thing, even enjoyable. 
One thing I'm interested in is when people experience anger, some people experience it quite a positive thing. They yeah. say that it feels like their authentic self or they feel yeah. it's cathartic or they yeah. feel it's healthy. Yeah. Do you feel good when it's happening? Do you feel good after it's happening? No, I always, always, always regret it afterwards. And if I shout at my children, as I'm saying, I always, always regret it. But it doesn't stop me doing it next time. Okay. I always, I know it's wrong. Okay, I, anger is wrong. That's what I've been trained to think. Who trained you? The BBC. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But when you're at home and you're angry dad shouting at your poor kids, <laughs> I hugely identify with this because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a father of children. I, I shout at them and I, I hate myself for doing it. Um, then you're not in BBC mode, are you? I mean, presumably no, you're then enacting like maybe what you well, learned from your I think parents. That's probably or? why I do shout because I get home, I put the management training beside and all the sense of self-image and so on. And also, it's because they don't behave like other people would behave in a workplace situation, so they don't let it go. They say no, why should I? And push back. Yeah. So it, it accelerates very, very quickly. And then you lose it. You lose your temper. Shout yeah. at them. Yeah. And then you immediately feel bad. Oh no, 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 no. So you stay in the rage for a bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my and my biggest regret actually about it is that they shout back, and I think they obviously shout back because I shout. I I hear you, brother. That is my biggest regret as well. When I see my children shouting yeah, at me and slamming the door, and I think, oh, I've go. You know, I've passed this on to the next generation now. Yeah. Of course, that's one of the main ways that emotions get transmitted through cultures and across the centuries, as parents pass on, whether deliberately or in spite of themselves, the emotional behaviours that they learned as children. In my childhood, for instance, my dad was pretty angry. Sometimes with me, like the time that I untuned all the channels on our TV set so all you could see was that black and white snow. That was back in the 1980s, when you had to tune TVs manually with tiny black plastic wheels. But he was furious about loads of other things too. He would angrily demand to see the manager in a restaurant if the service had been substandard. He would spend hours on the telephone to customer service departments, indignantly demanding not to be put on the music, but instead to be put straight through to a supervisor. Such was the extent of his letter writing and telephone campaigns, fired by his outrage at all manner of poor service that when he died, two of the big organisations he was in a long-running dispute with sent us flowers and messages of condolence. When I think of anger, I think of angry dads and of everyday frustrations. Talking to other people at the Free Thinking Festival, though, I discovered that for them, the first thing they associate with anger is something more political. I'm very angry at the moment, to the point where I, I don't know what to do with it. Historian Dr Fern Riddell. It goes hand in hand with heightened anxiety. So when I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I don't think there's going to be change, that makes you anxious because you want the system to change, you want the situation you're in to change, but you feel you can't or it won't change. At the moment, you know, I can't do anything about Brexit. I'm not an MP. I'm not sitting in Parliament. I'm not Prime Minister. I'm not in charge of those decisions. Someone else is choosing for me. And that makes me very angry and scared and frustrated. But at the same time, if you're talking about anger in everyday life, the things that make me angry are queuing. (laughs) And we have our domestic anger, 
which is the anger that we find in the world around us. And then we have whatever the opposite of that could be is the anger that happens outside of our domestic life. I think that's a useful distinction between the anger that people perceive in politics, whether in relation to Trump, Me Too or climate catastrophe, and the frustrations of our everyday domestic life. The question then is whether ultimately those are the same thing or not. Kyindi Andrews is Professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University and the author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. I met him in my backstage cupboard or dressing room at Sage Gateshead. Uh, I'm always angry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm angry right there. No, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, do, I, I do actually like personally get angry, but also politically angry as well. Yeah. How, how does that relationship work for you? I mean, so presumably you have what I do, the kind of everyday anger, you're angry with someone who pulls out in front of you in the street or <laughs> someone who behaves badly to you yeah. in a shop or whatever. And that's just yeah. like the kind of, oh, yeah. For you, and that's the anger that I don't like, and I find okay, yeah, yeah. it kind of unhelpful. And but when you talk about political anger, yeah, is it that thing? Is it that same thing or not? Is it completely different? No, it's a very similar. Oh, so, what's they have in common? I actually used to get very angry. So, as a young guy, I used to get very, very, really like uncontrollably angry. It took a lot actually to like kind of control the anger. The anger hasn't gone; it's still there. Um, but I just use it more productively now. So, for example, I wouldn't break something or cost somebody off some necessary I, I might still feel that I go work out exercise like do something else like there's other ways to challenge it there's a kind of energy that comes with anger which you just need to put somewhere else which is useful personally but also that ties into the politics as well the anger isn't the problem it's where you do with it it creates an energy and it's about what where do you put it that idea of energy I keep hearing this and I've come to think of it as the mainstream view that anger is an energy and it's an engine for action and change something not only healthy, but useful too. And there's one modern thinker especially associated with that view. Anger is the most useful political emotion. So uh, Malcolm X is the absolute bedrock of my intellectual and activist ideas, often called the angriest black man in America. And it was very clear, it says, look, like, anger is what we need, because anger is what makes you change, right? If you're sad about something, you're going to cry. You might sit down and cry or feel shame, but actually it's anger that motivates you, it's anger that gets you onto the streets, it's anger that gets you involved in change. So yeah, anger's, anger has shaped the world for good and for bad. I'm very aware of my privileged position. I'm white, male, have a good job and a comfortable life. I can see that it's easy for me to be disapproving of anger. As Fern Riddell points out, it may be something of a luxury to be against anger. I want to be like you. I want to think that anger and rage is unimportant. But I have spent my life so angry. Angry at being touched up in a bar. Angry at not being able to punch someone when they touch me when I don't want them to and I don't know them and they're a stranger at not being able to defend myself from a physical... Uh, attack is too strong a word, but from, from someone coming into you, into your space, when you don't want them to, there was almost a clean, beautiful brutality to the fact two lads can square off against each other. Whereas I can't do that. I was always taught as a young woman... I couldn't. I almost wish women could be seen as violent as men because, my God, I think many women in my teens especially would have been very different if men did not think what, I, what we were going to say was, please leave me alone, but we're going to square off at them just as they would anyone else. 
that's certainly not something I've had to endure. And gendered double standards when it comes to rage and violence are nothing new. We heard in the first episode from Dr. Charlotte Rose Miller about how in the 16th and 17th centuries, people believed that witches made pacts with the devil to take angry revenge in supernatural ways. What's really important as well is that 90% of English witches are women and that women are viewed as being far more angry than men. Um, that men will get angry in short bursts and all will be resolved, whereas women will harbour a sort of revengeful anger that will burn and then explode. But are these centuries-old attitudes to the angry witch in any way relevant today? Well, this has actually made me quite angry because by looking at how women are viewed as sort of vengeful, angry beasts, really. I see that in our own society now, I think. Um, often in news reports as well, where the men's anger is sort of righteous, whereas the women's anger is sneaky and underhand. Um, and you can actually see it in cases where women kill their husbands, but they don't do it immediately on being attacked. They do it in the night, and that's not defensible. And it's sort of seen as a different type of anger, the wrong type of malicious, sneaky anger, um, as opposed to a sort of honest, upfront anger. Through the ages, women have been subjected to all kinds of criticisms for being too emotional, hysterical, sentimental, or not emotional enough, hard-hearted, unfeminine. And as we've just heard, when it comes to anger, women can't win either, with their ire being portrayed as sneaky or malicious in comparison to the more honest brutality of male rage. Fern Riddell's book, Death in 10 Minutes, about the suffragette Kitty Marion, opened my eyes to the anger of another woman, this time one living in Victorian and Edwardian Britain. Kitty was brought up by a father with an uncontrollable temper, and she arrived in London in 1886 as a young, argumentative, red-headed German immigrant who came to experience blinding anger in response to her experiences here. She was an actress who was on the musicals and found that men, agents, managers, expected that she would exchange her body for work. That's what first radicalised her anger, was the experiences that happened to her in the industry, in her working life, where she expected things to be one way, and they weren't. And what actually she was expected to give was a part of herself, or have it taken from her. And when we see that moving into her political life, those feelings and those emotions carry her through to commit incredibly violent acts. Kitty, as she put it herself, went about avenging the insult of sexual assault by becoming a radical suffragette. In April 1913, she firebombed the home of Sir Arthur Ducrow, the Conservative MP for Hastings. Pathé newsreel footage of the St. Leonard outrage at the time shows the devastation and estimates the cost of repairing the damage at £10,000, a huge sum, more like a million pounds in modern terms. The whole justification for suffrage violence from Kitty to the Pankhursts was that men have fought for their rights with violence. The Chartists burned things down. We are here doing the same thing as men so that you understand... Women are not just your equal intellectually, they're not just your equal emotionally, they are your equal violently, because violence seems to be the only thing you listen to. It's very powerful, and it comes across very powerfully in your book. To what extent was that narrative that you just articulated, one that 
that was part of suffragette propaganda, if you like. I understand that as a narrative which makes a lot of sense, perhaps in private, for, 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 as a motivation. But my understanding, and I am absolutely not an expert, is that the public voice of those women was much more calm and rational. And it, it was important that it should be. But I think this is the sanitization of our history. This is what's at play here, and this is the problem. Because if you look at the suffragist movement of everyone who's campaigning for the vote, yes, it's incredibly passionate and strident debate, but it isn't violent. When you look at the suffragettes, who are the members of the WSPU with the Pankhurst-owned organisation, that is the only organisation that are threatening bombs by 1909, before there had been a huge amount of state violence. Christabel Pankhurst, in the suffragette, which is the main organ of the suffragette movement of of trying to persuade people to give women the vote, she would print every week a double-page spread of every single attack that had happened that the suffragettes had done. All the bombings, all the arsons, every post box that was burned, every threat to an MP. There's an amazing quote from Christabel Pankhurst where she says, men use the weapons of bombs and it's called a noble act. Why should we not do the same? When you go back to the source material, you go back to the women who were doing these acts, you'll see that they were proud, they were defiant, they were very public about it. Because you've got to remember, the whole reason for the bombing and the arson and everything else was to get yourself into a criminal prosecution box so your arguments for why would be recorded and printed in the press. Yes, absolutely. And there's absolutely no doubt, and your work has helped to make sure people know this, that suffragettes were proudly using violence and telling the world they were using violence. What I still am not sure about, but I'm sure I just need to read some more and do some more research, is did they accompany that with a rhetoric of rage and fury explicitly in their publications? Let's say you've got the two pages of the double spread of here are the post boxes that we've burnt and, and bombed and so on. And then was, you turn the page, an editorial saying, why rage and fury are great. Because my impression is that that wasn't the case. That, and, and that example you give there, which is very um, evocative of the woman who wants to be prosecuted for a crime so that she can put her case in the witness box, she, my impression is, would give that, make that case rationally and persuasively in quite a logical uh, way. So that's why I'm asking is, can you, and if, there, if this exists, then great, then point me towards it, the kind of editorials where they say, we proclaim female fury as a positive thing. Because that's the thing that I have not seen. Firstly, Tom, I think checking my footnotes would be really helpful. Um, because in one of the things in sorry, one of the things in there is uh, links to all of the suffragette. And for your listeners, I think one of the things that was might be very useful for them, the suffragette newspaper has now been completely digitised by the British Newspaper Archive. It is downloadable, it is searchable. You can look at it, and I suggest anyone who is interested in the language the suffragettes use that is should be their first point of call. Also, that they can see all of these amazing double page spreads and see the evidence for themselves. As a historian, I'm always looking for the evidence. And I was intrigued to know if women really were celebrating anger in the 1910s, the way they would start to do much more widely in the 1970s. So, when I got home from Gateshead, I did what Fern suggested. I took out a subscription to the online British newspaper archive, wasn't too expensive, and searched The Suffragette for references to anger and rage. Okay, so I've um, found quite a few examples. Uh, There's some cases of 
suffragettes contrasting their calm and rational approach with the angry emotional men, which is what I kind of expected to find. Um, and there's also a few examples of what Fern said that I would find, which is material and articles celebrating women's anger. So, for example, here, uh, there's an article by Ethel Carney from 1913, which I've printed out, called Woman, a Study by One. And this is a kind of satirical summary of the supposed differences between men and women. So those emotional double standards we were talking about, uh, according to which a woman is sentimental, but a man has a great heart. Uh, an angry woman is like a cat, which I think is supposed to be bad. And an angry man is a bulldog. And Ethel Carney in this article exhorts her readers to ignore this kind of nonsense and to fight for women's rights on an equal footing with men. So there the anger is pretty explicit and it's been linked to, to violent struggle. And then there's this, and this is probably the best example of what Fern was telling me about. Here we go. So here it says, the suffragette, uh, official organ of the Women's Social and Political Union, WSPU, Friday, December the 5th, 1913, price one penny every Thursday. And then this is the leading article, and it's called The Anger of Women. It's by Christabel Pankhurst, who Fern was talking about, and it's about the hypocrisy of the government in turning a blind eye to men who are threatening violent rebellion over the Irish question while prosecuting suffragettes who are proposing the same tactics uh, to pursue their goals. So men who are violent, that's okay. Women, uh, they're prosecuted. And Christabel Pankhurst, this is her conclusion uh, to the article. And let the government not imagine, imagine that though they that dare, though not, they arrest dare men, not arrest who men threaten who realm, threaten the peace of the realm, it is a lighter matter to prosecute and persecute and torture women. For by doing that, and by their continued denial of freedom, they are calling up a force that is the most powerful in the world. The wise and strong and deep anger of women. My lecture at the Free Thinking Festival, which is still available to listen online, is called Feelings and Feelings and Feelings. And in it, I spoke about the poet and activist Audre Lorde as one of the great writers about female rage in the 20th century. She and Malcolm X are crucial figures in understanding anger as part of the politics of black liberation. We've already heard Kayindi Andrews mentioning that famous quote from Malcolm X about how sad people cry and get nothing done, but angry people really make a change in the world. Isn't it dangerous, though? I asked Kayindi, for leaders to whip up rage in their followers. Isn't that a very powerful and destructive passion? Yeah, so I think anger can definitely be destructive. You can see it with the rise of the far right. You can see it with people were so angry they actually voted for Donald Trump as president, which is a totally ridiculous <laughs> situation. So the far right fascist terrorist extremism tends to whip up anger. That's the kind of build it up and stoke it. Um, but radicalism is more about channeling the anger. Because people are already angry. If you're the grassroots, the poor, their constant understanding is anger. So it's about how do you channel that into something else, which is very different to like the kind of extremist politics which just tries to provoke it into destruction. 
I wonder if you're being a bit too easy on Malcolm X and saying, you know, he's just channeling something that's already there, whereas those fascists and terrorists whip it up. Wasn't he doing some whipping up? I mean, I mean, it depends what you mean by whipping up, right? So um, Malcolm, so Malcolm's often closely related to Martin Luther King around about the same time, around about the same age, only met once, which tells you quite a lot. Mm. And mine was all about the politics of love. And see, Malcolm's response to this was that what the civil rights movement does and what the community politics does, the mainstream does, is tries to water down the legitimate feelings of the black masses, right? So there's this big thing where he calls the 1963 civil rights march, that big showpiece march on Washington. Malcolm hated it, said it was the farce on Washington. And the reason he gave is because at first it was this angry march. People were just going to go down and they were going to lie down on the airplane. They're going to just, just disrupt and then what happens is the civil rights movement gets involved, the president gets involved, and they literally integrate it. And this is just, it's not it becoming white as a problem, it's it becoming cool. So Malcolm always talks about it. you need to be hot, hot, that's what we need. That's, and when you integrate things and when the civil rights movement get involved, it cools it down. And what used to be hot and what used to keep, keep you awake now puts you to sleep. It's like Novocaine, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why you need anger, because it's the anger that keeps you going. Right? Listening to that, I'm wondering about the kind of religious angle on that particular moment uh, whether Christianity or Islam obviously you can find a lot of different teachings and a lot of different versions of both those religions but there are quite strong traditions of 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 teaching love and forgiveness within religious contexts so how did how did that work for Malcolm X and indeed for Martin Luther King and you know in, in terms of that really interesting conflict that you've set up there between their two political philosophies uh so so Malcolm in the Nation of Islam which is a particular version of Islam which he moves away from at the end but one of the re- one of the reasons why it fit uh, Malcolm's philosophy is because uh, he called it the old time religion it's the eye for an eye tooth for a tooth religion which actually you can find in the bible right the version of Islam which you're getting in that movement is a version which embraces anger embraces even if you like revenge or violence which is very much opposed to the kind of more passive I mean I don't want to say passive because Civil rights movement, there's mobilizations, they, they took violence. It wasn't actually passive, but rhetorically you get this kind of it's passive, love thy, love thy enemy approach. Whereas the theology of the nation certainly wasn't there. It was more about self-defense, reliance, etc. One thing I've become aware of is that I'm very, very nervous of anger and very suspicious of it. I think at both a personal and a political level. And I'm just instinctively drawn to, yeah, teachings of love and forgiveness, which would put me on the Martin Luther King kind of <laughs> side of things. Um, and I've started to wonder, you know, what is the relationship there between my personal sort of emotional makeup formed by my upbringing and my education and my political ideas? I mean, have you th- do, you, do you think about that in your case? Do you feel that your attitude to anger is both personal and political? Yeah, and actually going back to Malcolm again, like why is it that Malcolm embraces anger? Uh, whereas King doesn't. Actually, there's a big class dimension to it, where, you know, Malcolm's from the streets, he's from the hood, he's from the, he's went to prison. Like, he's literally the most marginalised you can be in America. And that's the, that's the grassroots, and people tend to be angry in those situations. Whereas, like, even my position, I have very little to personally be angry about. If you're in the middle class, you can see a way where you can get on in society. If you're not, if you're properly locked down, and you can't see that, and you're truly marginalised, then you have nothing, why wouldn't you be angry? <laughs> that's, that's why you embrace anger. So I think class is a really big part of this. That must be true, I think. Class is a huge part of this. And talking to Fern and Kayindi has made me really aware of that in my own case. I'm resistant to anger politically, partly because of how I experienced it in my middle-class upbringing. I grew up in a house where people didn't swear or hit each other, but rage and hostility were there expressed through sarcasm, 
sulking, or through letters of complaint and demands to speak to the manager, as well as when I got shouted at for messing up our TV. So even when I'm thinking about politics, this is what I keep coming back to. Angry dads. For me personally, it seems, this is the pressing question. What is the most emotionally healthy model for me to set to my children? Does emotional health mean never expressing anger? Or does it mean finding a healthier place for it? What does Matthew Dodd think? We met him earlier. He's the head of speech programmes on BBC Radio 3 and a fellow angry dad. If he imagines the most healthy possible relationship with his teenage children, does it involve no anger at all? Or some sort of justified and articulated anger that perhaps can be reflected on and learned from? I think it involves no anger, if I could manage it in that way. But, um, but that's partly about them as well, if they could be less provocative. Um, it's not, I'm not taking entire responsibility here for this. <laughs> so it's um, an, in a morally healthy and emotionally healthy household, yes. you would feel, don't put words in your mouth, but you'd feel the frustration building up and then you would you, yeah. you'd sort of keep yeah. it under a lid and yeah. then you would say to your children, yeah. we need to have a chat yeah. because you're making me quite frustrated yeah, exactly. in the way that you're... Yeah, and what usually happens is I'm very good at that and then they just say something and I'm like, don't you, you know. So it will be working just fine until the last minute. Yeah. And then... I will sort of snap. Yeah. And do you think studying the history of ideas about anger might make you more uh, emotionally healthy? Well, that's interesting because I think that I would need training. You know, anger management. It's like a bad habit that I've picked up in the yeah. last few years. Okay. So, so if we could design a course based on sort of Seneca and other sort of great moral philosophers, you, you might sign up to come Yes, up. Uh, yeah. probably. I'd just sign my children up as well. Yeah, OK. We've got a probably there. OK, that's good. I mentioned Seneca there in conversation with Matthew, and I really do think there's a place for his ideas in modern debates about anger. He was a Roman statesman and Stoic philosopher, and his first-century treatise, De Ira, On Rage, is one of my favourite texts written about and against angry emotions. There are two other episodes in this podcast series inspired by Seneca, a drama by Craig Baxter called Seneca Annoyed, and some highlights from Seneca's book, era in another one. I do really think it's a pretty good read. Seneca thought of rage, or ire, as a polymorphous evil, the opposite of emotional health. He thought era, the desire for revenge, was fundamentally wicked. He also thought that it came in many different forms, but none of them good. I tend to share Seneca's view that rage is a brief form of madness, a kind of disease rather than any sign of emotional health. But whether or not we think anger can be healthy, perhaps it's just inevitable, especially for those who, unlike me, find themselves lacking agency, lacking a voice. I'm not sure. I still think there's a range of potential emotions people can feel in response to injustice and oppression, and it's not inevitable that it will be anger for everyone. In earlier episodes, we met Professor Sarah Garfinkel, the scientist of emotions who doesn't experience anger. She told us that in her upbringing, anger didn't play a major role. I guess she was lucky, and she didn't have an angry dad. But if it were true that anger is an inevitable stage on the path to political protest, then wouldn't a non-angry person like Sarah be politically inert, hopelessly passive, even half asleep, as Malcolm X suggests? 
I protest and I strongly advocate for different things that I feel are right. And I can understand the mobilisation of trying to change things. And certainly for people that have suffered tragedies and losses, I understand intellectually they must be angry. But I've been on a lot of protests. I've been working in the States a lot. So I was actually on a protest just after Trump's inauguration in New York. I was also on the March for Science, which is something I feel passionate about, also in New York. And we were singing, we were chanting, my salary and my work and my whole world is dependent on science. So um, that's something I care passionately about and also the terrible things that Trump is doing. I, my family were Syrian refugees, um, originally on my mum's side. So I feel very passionately and emotionally about these issues. And I will sing and I will join in and I will feel motivated and driven to want a change to happen. But I, I wouldn't say that I feel anger. I feel distress. We've seen throughout this podcast series that when it comes to emotions, we're all different. I share Sarah's feelings of distress and grief about much of what's happening in the world today. Political change can come out of those sad emotions too. You can protest without anger. In the first episode of The Sound of Anger, you can hear Sarah telling us that she has a condition, selective alexithymia, which means she's unable to feel or recognise anger. Another way of looking at it, though, through a moral rather than a medical lens, would be to say that she's achieved one of the virtues of a true Stoic. Seneca would really approve. She's able to witness and respond to injury and injustice in a calm and detached way, but with no less moral power or authority than an angry person. I don't know, but I just think maybe we could do with a few more Stoic sages. We have more than enough angry people on Twitter, on phone ends, not to mention in high office. And if we endorse anger as a healthy and effective emotion on one side of an argument, I don't see how to prevent it being celebrated on all sides, ratcheting up the rhetoric of hatred and violence. So, in the end, did my conversations at the Free Thinking Festival make me more anger positive? Not really. But Kayindi, Fern and the others definitely helped me see why we disagreed with each other and also some of the shortcomings of my approach and how it's obviously shaped by my privilege as a white man. I'll be trying to shout at my children much less, while continuing to worry about anger in politics today, inspired by the ideas of the people I've met for this podcast. I keep on changing my mind about this. Every time I speak to someone, I just think, oh, yeah, it's got a point. I'm like basically extremely anti-anger. Really? Yeah, yeah, but so I try and... It's a I'm the like my, yeah, but right of course. So, in terms of class <laughs> and privilege, and okay, so maybe that's obvious, right? What have I got to be angry about? Um, so, and I have to recognise that. You know, I'm the Martin Luther King <laughs> plus, you know, end of the spectrum. Um, so, I guess it depends. If you think if you think the status quo is either defensible or can be changed so that it can fit. Well, can I let, yeah. So let me just carry yeah. this one point one point further than that. Because what I'm trying to grapple with is. Can we imagine a society in which there is injustice, there is unfairness and inequality, and people suffer poverty and, uh, and lack of power wrongly? Mm-hmm. Can we imagine a society where the people who are suffering that recognise that, mm-hmm. and they forcefully and persuasively argue their case, 
but they don't get angry. They don't shout, they don't threaten violence, they don't riot, they don't get furious. And that they're still just as effective. Is that a possible state of affairs? No. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, I think... Because why would we want to deny them anger in that situation? I mean, look, well, if you're being a person, you should be angry. If the right? anger is the sort of almost physical rage, I don't see how that's helping them. That's what I'm saying. It's because... No, no, the anger... The, what's important is mm-hmm. the injustice and the yeah. need for change. And what, I guess what I'm saying is, couldn't the anger be have a much smaller role? That the anger is almost like just kind of wake up call, like, God, why am I feeling like that? Oh, yes, it's because of the poverty and injustice I live with. Right, let's get on. We're working out how to change that. Yeah, but you need the anger to, to keep you going. And you also we should recognise that people who are oppressed should rightfully be angry. This is the entirely appropriate response. A child dies every 10 seconds because they have no access to food. Why? Doesn't that make you angry? It makes no, me it angry. makes me sad. Right. It makes me sad. But then when you said, this is, this is the Malcolm quote, right, you said I, you don't do anything, right? Like you don't, and I don't agree, yeah, but I don't agree with that quote. I mean, <laughs> no? I've used that quote myself, and it's a great <laughs> quote, and it illustrates absolutely perfectly the difference in philosophy. Yeah. Because I think that you can be sad and act on it, or you can be loving and act on it. I don't think that anger has a, has a monopoly on motivation. Yeah, that's true. No, but I think one of the things that anger is destructive, and I think if you believe that this system is fundamentally not broken, but kind of works, it does what it's supposed to do, then you believe the system needs to be destroyed. And to bring something down, it needs anger. And then you can rebuild from that. And I think that's, that's really where Malcolm is getting at. It's actually we need to recreate. It's not about reform or fixing it. It's about tearing this thing down and starting again. And for that, you have to have anger. I think you'd agree, right? Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. It was presented by me, Thomas Dixon, as part of the Living with Feeling project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust. It was produced by Natalie Steed. To hear the rest of the Sound of Anger series, including an extended interview with Dr. Fern Riddell, search for Queen Mary History of Emotions on SoundCloud or iTunes and discover more about our work at emotionslab.org.